Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Friday, it is the 19th of November. Michael, how have you been since Wednesday? Oh, let's not, Gary, let's not go into that. Private griefs and all that. So, we have Stephen Donnelly rediscovering the idea of uh, fiscal restraint when the choice is between antigen tests or nurses. A question of the clarity of the law as the government rediscovers its drive to not go into full lockdown, but to tell people there are a couple of restrictions. And it seems we've already gone back to the old style of this is the law and this is what we would like you to think the law is. The Green Party have said the quiet part out loud and have accepted in a written submission to a government consultation that increases in heating prices are good because they are likely to make people go green. And we're going to follow up on the Labour Party bill we mentioned last week. It got to the doll. The only people who stood against it were the independents, and they stood against it on the basis that all it's going to do is increase costs for small businesses and increase costs on uh, for the consumer, and that's absolutely right. So just a, a quick note to keep our listeners ahead of the curve, it may be a very good time for you to begin playing the lotto. Uh, Bernard Durkin has come out and pointed out there's been no jackpot winner in six months. The odds are ridiculous, and he's calling for an investigation into it. Now, I'm not saying uh, for any particular reason, but maybe it's a good time to start doing the lotto. I'm very carefully not implying anything, Michael. Very, very carefully. I'm just saying, you know, no matter how ancient and sparkling a rain is, it must come to an end. Eventually. I am just looking at a very interesting little article in RTE, which perhaps we will touch upon before we uh, talk about the actual things we meant to talk about. Oh, yes. It's a story saying that, um, basically saying that it looks like the first person who got COVID-19, a worker in the um, the Wuhan market. This means that the, uh, the likelihood is that the virus did not originate from the Wuhan lab, but came into the city uh, through an animal. And this happened later than we had previously thought. Yes, yes, uh, sometime in December. But what I thought was interesting uh, is the very last article, or the very last line in the article. Because they go to, you know, a, a, an expert to say if this new information is accurate, Michael. And he says, yes, it's he is fully convinced by the analysis and it appears now that this is correct and obviously there is therefore no lab leak. But it's just it's just the name of the person they went to, Michael. Well, um, what's what's in a name? A rose by any name would spell just as sweet. Yeah, you see, there is a bit in a name, though, because the name they went to is Peter Dazak. Peter Dazak. Now, that rings a, that rings a, a vague Wuhan COVID bell with me somewhere. Well, he's been very involved in this. He was involved in putting together a letter for The Lancet, which called the lab leak theory a conspiracy theory. It might have also called it racist. And he has been very involved in that because he is involved in this area. But it turned out subsequently, Michael, that he was very involved in this area, as in very involved in this area. Was he the... What do they call it when you take... Uh, it's like... You know how the, that process that turns a human being into a superhero? You're the, the scientists do the same thing to viruses. They take a... Gain of function. Gain of function. Always sounds to me like something you should do if you're doing... 
like calculus or differentiation well this is a game of fun the gain of function function he was was he not involved in the gain of function thing yeah he was involved in uh taking american funding and passing it to the wuhan institute of virology to conduct gain of function research ah. and it turned out of course that Dazak was the primary organizer of the letter that came out saying that the idea leaked from the lab which he had been funding was a conspiracy theory and it subsequently turned out that he had been communicating with Chinese scientists in the lab prior to it. And it looked like they had basically asked him to put together the um, the letter. Now, he did. He was on the World Health Organization um, team that went into China to investigate the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. I remember because it turned into an absolute shit show because people tried to get him off it. Saying things like incredibly flagrant conflicts of interest. But very qualified person. I is his Wikipedia, Michael. By the way, is fantastic because the page is locked, so most people can't edit it. But they're talking about how he was. He went to China with the WHO, and it says this became controversial due to Dazak's previous activities with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, perceived by some as a conflict of interest. <laughs> some picky, picky types, you know, picky, nitty, picky. Always something to give out about. Yeah, and there was all that. I mean, he, I believe Dazak was being called into Congress and it got pretty nasty and messy. But anyway, he is the point, he is the person that Ortier has uh, decided is to be given overview of these things and told whether or not what they're saying is legitimate. But at least Ortier have adverted to his connection to uh, that, to gain function research in it when they quote him. No, no, no. In fact, the only thing they mention about him is that he was on the WHO investigative team that went into uh, China. Well, that sounds... It must be pressure of space. That's the only thing I can think of. That they meant to put in the stuff about the gain of function... And the conflicts of interests and the... the... And, uh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the internet, Gary, yeah, you have to pay extra if you go over a certain number of characters. And RTE is a publicly funded body. And what was the other thing? Yes, when that letter went into the Lancet... Dazak forgot to actually, because, you know, there's a conflict of interest section, Michael. Uh, Dazak quite simply forgot to point out his... um, (laughs) Just slipped his mind completely. That his company had been, you know, the primary conduit for American funds. Yeah. Well, you know, busy people, Gary, have lots of things going on in their lives. You can't always assume, you know, just in that moment you're signing a document, and then afterwards you think oh, did I mention the, the channeling the funds to Wuhan for the oh, maybe, I, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the stuff where if this leaked and people keep talking about gain of function I could in some way be implicated in, and that could lead to the destruction of my business and potentially, you know, the, the destruction of my life. That kind of thing, yeah. Well, I, I think we've all got to admire, Michael <laughs> how capable Peter Dazak is of putting himself above that. It's so capable, in fact, that no one ever seems to feel the need to even point out that these things exist. We can only aspire to such levels of uh, selflessness. But we can at the same time be grateful, Gary, that in the face of people who always give out about RTE and complain about it and want it abolished, you see, we have a public service broadcaster which provides the high-quality, contextualised reporting of stories where they know, because they take their money from no one, they own no favours, so they can tell the complete truth. And that's why you get RTE, that kind of reporting and that kind of news from RTE, and you won't get that from other sources, Gary. And that's why we need to have, we need to have the licence fee and maybe more money even, so the RTE can have, can have, can buy more space on the internet and write the, the longer stories that they wanted. 
I will point out that there is an AFP mark on that article, which would be... Uh, Agent reference, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's entirely possible, or he didn't even write this article, or if they did write it, it's based heavily on an AFP piece, which I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse. No, um, that's, yeah, better or worse, better or worse. It's one of those things. It's one of those. Well, no, maybe it's just the same. So, we have gone back, not into lockdown, although the current word is that uh, look out for that in January. Yeah, we're going to save Christmas again. We're going to save Christmas again. Because obviously, Michael, when you're dealing with a, a respiratory illness, the best thing that you can do is open in winter. You know... I, I seem to think that, I seem to recall, Michael, you and I having a conversation about this in summer when Britain was reopening and pointing out that if there is any element of seasonality or any requirement to protect the health service, because the Irish health service is you know teetering on the brink at the best of times in winter, it might be better to open in summer. Therefore, have all those surges then when you could deal with them and not November. I say this Without a spin or side or irony, I have absolute expertise in epidemiology or public health, and I'm perfectly willing to believe that there may be at least one t- very good, sound scientific reasons why you do something at one time and not another. But when the Brits decided that they were going to push up, push for an opening in summer, and they were coruscated and attacked and vilified on this side of the Irish Sea, by the same kind of people for an odd identity, same kind of people who seem to have this ongoing obsession with the Brits and Brexit and all that nonsense. They, One of the reasons they said was, listen, we seem to be fairly well used to the fact that this seems to be some kind of a sine wave. It'll come and it'll go, there, there will be surges. There will be a winter surge. There, w- So we feel that it will be, if we're going to have a surge, let's open up in summer t- do what we can do, and hopefully this will uh, mitigate that winter surge. Because we know that whenever you open up, there will there's a surge, and if you if you open up at the same time as shall we say the opening of the winter respiratory bug season, and we're having a proper one this year, which we didn't really last year. If you talk to the GPs and you read the papers, it says we are there are lots of respiratory very nice respiratory uh, bacterias and viruses out there. I know this to my own personal uh, pleasure. That, you know, we can take some of the, the sting out of it. Lo and behold, the Brits had their surge, and now their surge is declining. Uh, now, I make no predictions about this, because people who have been in the business of making predictions about which way any curve goes with COVID have ended up look, looking embarrassed. Yeah, but Michael, there's advanced level predictions and there's perhaps we don't want the increase in cases that will naturally happen when we open up to coincide with the annual near collapse of the health service also gary if we leave outside of the discussion the discussion that we have had and other people have had about the, the morality of the way the west is using the available stock of uh, vaccines and just work on the basis, well, we bought them, we get to use them. It's not our fault that we're rich and it's not our fault that you're poor. You know, life is unequal and there you go. We have a duty to protect our own first. The first country that's succeeded in achieving very large scale immunization vaccination within society was Israel. And therefore the first country that was in a position to observe the degree to which there was breakthrough in infection 
with people who are vaccinated over six months was also either. And the Israelis had decided by July of this year, the end of July of this year, that they were going to go into an extensive booster program because they were seeing large surges going through. We, you know, we, we when we actually went ahead and did the vaccination program, Gary, you have to say, once we got over the first problematic bit, which was a lot to do more with organisation, it had that it was actually about supply and the fact that we had failed to organise our supply problem. We actually did, I would say, a very good job. Now, there may be reasons that were bad why we did a good job, but we leave that alone. It was obvious. Again and again, we, we go through this little dance where we say, oh, we may have to do that, but we're not going to do it now, not going to do it now, not going to do it. And then suddenly, suddenly one day we wake up and we're doing it. And we think, if we'd done that three months ago, it would have been done by now. And everybody knew three months ago it was going to be done. Everybody knew we were eventually going to go down the line of boosters. According, depending who you read, we have a capacity between 250,000 and 700,000 uh, a week that we can give. We have all the boosters there. The information on the boosters, I know people say, well, yeah, we were told that about the vaccines the first time around, and that's a reasonable position. But the, the, the news of the boosters seems to be that they are extraordinarily effective. The longest available data we have on a booster is one, a man in Britain who is eight months now boosted, and he only just got his antibody tested yesterday and he's still literally off the charts his 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 response so and yet we're now talking well will we do it for asthmatics will we do it two years in two years in gary and the health service is still at the point of collapse no more icu units effectively no fever hospitals have been built you know even though keith redmond how are you keith how are you doing Keith has been advocating build a fever hospital. Well, Jesus, you want to build it quicker than the children's hospital. It's just, when you look at the amount of money, because that's it, we have been expending on this, sloshing it out there. And we are structurally as badly positioned as we were two years ago to deal with any kind of a surge in the system. For 118 people in ICU is creating the potential for a crisis. You have to wonder. Sometimes you have to wonder if the people running the country are actually doing a good and competent job, Gary. I, the thing I immediately note, Michael, is that we seem to have gone back to what is now an old, old way of doing things. The confusion over what the actual law is and what the government is telling you the law is. Because if you remember, Michael, particularly the first year of the pandemic, it turned out that the government was presenting things as law, which actually weren't. And not only were they doing this, but they were, according to some of the legal figures in TCD, doing this deliberately. Because when it was the case that uh, legal matters were brought against those laws, the government became able to, you know, expertly define what the actual law was versus what they had been saying the law was. Having been very careful never to have got close to an accurate definition because it didn't suit them. The broader, the vaguer, the, the weirder the thing was, that the better it suited them. But then when a judge said, okay, tell me what this, suddenly, oh, actually, we have a definition, judge. I think my, so we're seeing the same thing now at weddings and nightclubs and hotels where the, the what was the government's line? The clear policy intention. Yeah, that was the, that was the, that was the line when the, the question came up, would the 12 o'clock thing affect uh, weddings? And the first line response was no, because if you look at certain, uh, one section of advice given 
regarding the, the previous regulations of hospitality, it said that if you're talking about people who are resident in the hotel, that it would be possible for you know people to socialize afterwards and music to continue. And then this, somebody else, then in another place, it was found they found advice which seemed to be contrary. And then the Department of Tourism comes out with a statement which said, the clear policy intention, the clear policy intention was that all bars would cease to function and all activity connected to the bars would cease to function at 12 o'clock. Now, Gary, I'm sorry, I'm laughing here because it just occurs to me that it should be the Department of Tourism, say, and not the Department of Justice or the Office of the Attorney General that was issuing this particular piece of advice. It seems to be a little bit comic. It, does, it, it draws one's mind back to public masses being illegal and then it turning out that actually they weren't illegal. Everyone had just been told that they were illegal and the guards had threatened to arrest pastors on the assumption that they were illegal. Um, actually, that was another thing that Grip reported that never got outside Gripped. Do you remember the video we put up of a pastor being physically removed? Oh, yes, he's church in Dublin somewhere as well. A church in Dublin, yeah. I think we had maybe two different videos of it. But I know that we, um, in those instances... We passed on the details of the um, mm-hmm. of the pastors involved. We managed to we went to them, went look. Will you talk to people in these mainstream publications because they were happy to talk to us and give us the material, but they didn't trust. Well, I mean, like you gonna trust Patsy McGarry if you're a pastor? <laughs> yeah. But we we put them in touch, and it never got out because I remember at the time it had become a story that a that a priest had been turned away from a mass by guards or been stopped by guards. I can't actually remember the exact details. But then you have pastors being physically removed and suddenly no one is willing to report it, even though it's on video. And we'd given them the video and we put them in touch with the pastors and, and just nothing. And then, of course, they overcorrected in the next set of um, COVID guidelines because they were putting out like a new law every month and it was getting ridiculous. My favourite... My favourite one of that, Michael. And again, we were the only ones who reported it. Well, actually, sorry, there were two things. The first one was when um, Professor Aaron Doyle from Trinity College came out and said that the government had made confession illegal. That's right, yeah. He had made confession illegal. And also that he had they had made it legal to have the reception, but not to have act- the actual wedding. Well, no, that, that, that was my story. But Aaron Doyle's story was that um, Catholic confession simply illegal. Even outside. But no, the one I wrote was that the government... Now, I talked to a couple of legal people about this, and they said, yeah, my reading of this was likely correct, or at least arguable. Well, that, it was, that was the law as was written. So the government at one point made... They specifically changed the law so that weddings were allowed, as they thought. But what they actually said was that wedding receptions were allowed. Yes. And so I pointed out that the wedding ceremony or the service and the wedding reception are actually two entirely separate events. So you could go to a party to celebrate your wedding, but you couldn't actually get married because that was illegal, accidentally. (laughs) Well, uh, was it accidental, Gary? Or was it part of the deep anti-Christian, super secular communist plan which is underlying all of this government's behaviour? We tried to get anyone from uh, the government to comment on this, any department, any TD, and I've never seen so much silence. And then in the <laughs> yeah. next round of law, it was just fixed. 
So I'm pretty sure we were right on that, but again, no one else reported it, which is a shame, because I thought that was a really fun story. You, you say they were making laws every month. They weren't. They were making laws literally every other, every week and every other day, because every time the cabinet met, or, ne- or, sub- or, or a subcommittee, it, they would come out with... There were periods where they were coming out every time with a new regulation. And wh- now, whether or not these regulations actually were law, that was, in, shall we say... A question open to debate or an interesting point it, it transpires but it was very much the impression that we were being given that these things were in fact law now it, as the, our, the 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 lads in trinity later made clear and often at the time they were they were aspirations to law or ideas for a law and stuff that would eventually become a law but just because they came out of the minister's mouth didn't actually make them a law the funny thing is that in Sort of democratic republics. There, are, there are processes you have to go through before things can actually be called laws. You know, all of that feels so long ago, Michael. I look. I, I was saying there last year, but I'm actually just looking at that story about weddings now. That was April, and the story about uh, making confession illegal again, presumably accidentally, April the twentieth, and the public mass thing was only March. We the thing about mass and going to church and all that, the legality or the other always. We never really got to the end of that, did we? We don't really know what the story was there. Because when they lifted the last time, the last set of restrictions, the sense being that this was definitive, the court, which had been continually asked, you know, a bit like an annoying schoolboy asking a question in class, Declan Galley was clicking, Supreme Court, please, hello, Supreme Court, can you tell me? And they kept saying, yeah, next week, next week. And eventually they managed to get it to the point where the restrictions were lifted and people could go back to mass again. So they said, ah, well, it's a moot point now, it doesn't matter, we don't have to give. It'll be interesting if we do return to some form of lockdown or restriction. And the, they, they really are, the voices are out there. They, it feels like we are being prepared. But maybe not, maybe we're being prepared just in case and they think it'll be so awful they have to. It'll be interesting to see what the story will be with churches. Will, will that case be... I mean, I know Declan Ganley is ready and ready and waiting to get stuck in again if it if it should return. But will they will they put it, will they long finger him again, or will they feel like they have to pull the trigger this time and actually hear the case? And, uh, I suppose that depends how political you think Irish courts are. And I will pass along silently under that one. <laughs> so yeah, we'll we'll see on that. It really does feel like a lot longer since that entire mess. But I I do remember it well. We're just we've made a law. It's incredibly far-reaching. It's like nothing the state has ever seen before. Oh, we fucked it up. Better rewrite it. And just this constant treadmill of laws that differed in minute forms and referred back to each other. And by the end of it, no one had any idea what the regulations actually were, like in a legal sense. And you had Trinity Law professors constantly coming out and just going, this is a mess. What's happening? And then, of course, you had the um, the Zappone thing and the, well, actually, you can have this size of an event. That was always the intention. Uh, it just wasn't yeah. in the regulations. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. That was the best. Oh, uh, yeah. And I loved that because I could still remember, it was, I think, a ra- uh, it was a radio interview. I can't remember. Was it, I don't think it was RTA. And the um, it was the, the head boss man for the... Uh, the Restaurant Tourist Hoteliers Association. 
And he was reacting to this rather bland, rather surprised statement. Well, it was always understood that the numbers weren't just for, you know, for concerts. These, these, these were the, this was the acceptable number you could have in hotels even. He said, this is such bullshit. Does he think we're thick? That we've been deliberately denying ourselves the possibility of doing business for the last X number of months. <laughs> and now they're trying to tell us that this was always the situation and always it was always known to be the law. He, the sense of well, deep annoyance at the idea that this might have been the law and they had been denying themselves the business. But most of all, the idea that how thick do you think we are as the various... Spin machines were running all over Dublin, desperately trying to deal with the Zappone thing. It was that was really funny. I was I was just waiting for him to come out with. It's curious considering all of the private meetings we've had with government TDs about this and the minister, how that never quite managed to come up. Yeah, that that one just never came up. Never never got on the agenda, even though nobody had pointed out. And I said, do you know? Isn't it funny that you're allowed to have up to this number, but you're not having it. Why is that, lads? Nobody ever said that. So just a, another small thing. Again, just a, a little bit of a note. Uh, you may have seen the story up on Grift. I wrote it up there yesterday. Um, the Green Party has sort of said the quiet part out loud in a written <laughs> consultation. Yeah. I don't know why they would write this down. I don't think anyone was surprised, but you don't write these things down because you always want to be able to deny them. But on a consultation on, um, it was on a renewable heat obligation. And basically what that would be is they want to pass it into law that all energy providers have a, a legal requirement to make a certain percentage of the energy they provide renewable energy. Now, if you're, you know, if you're doing you know, peat or you're doing oil or whatever, it's probably not going to be possible for you. So you're going to have to buy credits from uh, suppliers who are, are producing higher than the required amounts of renewable energy. So basically, you'll, you'll trade for it. Obviously, it will increase costs. The consultation was done as a series of questions, which you were to give a response to rather than the more free-form one they would go for in a lot of cases. And the Green Party were asked, are any costs that arise from this reasonable to impose on consumers? And they firstly said, well, it'll be a relatively small impact. But they said, yes, we believe these costs are reasonable. But then they said, the increased cost of fossil fuel heating will also help make the move to electrify heating look like a more attractive option when it is suitable. Now that, to me, Michael, sounds like the Green Party have now written that their official position is that increases in heating costs are good because they'll make you go green which is the government's policy. But it's not the government's stated policy. The stated policy is all about, you know, promoting better choices. No one ever comes out and says, well, your costs are going to go up. That's where you're going to do these things. So it's nice to actually just have it written down. Yeah, we have observed before that, you know, maybe they may not say it quite out loud, but, you know, they have a set of policies that if you don't feel hurt, by them economically, they're not working. If they don't impact upon you financially, they're not working. And the people who are least capable of experiencing financial impact are the poorest people. So therefore, we can say that government economic policy or energy policy is 
designed to impact most strongly on poor people. Uh, it's not a surprise. It is what it is. I suppose. I suppose the lie, lie. Is it a lie? The misunderstanding, Gary. The misunderstanding that they seem to be labouring under is that simply by sending these strong price signals out to poor people, like for example, in this case, making their electricity more expensive, or their or their choice, not their electricity, their well, their their energy supply is more expensive. That is that you, you use these price signals to nudge them to change over. But as we have discussed before, not everybody has thirty-five thousand or forty thousand or fifty thousand quid in their arse pocket to convert their house over to a different kind of uh, heating system. It's interesting that you you mention the the retrofitting there, Michael, because the w- other questions were things like, do you think this will pose a significant risk to increased energy poverty. And the Green Party says any scheme which increases the cost of fossil fuels has the potential to increase energy poverty. They then say the use of renewable energy produced from local waste for the purpose of heating has the potential to reduce energy costs for those who have access to it in preferences to continuing with heating oil systems. So again, if you switch over your heating system, which depending on the type of house you live in, could be quite difficult then you may actually save money. But you'll only do that because it's costing you money. But then they say, how best could the impacts on energy poverty be minimised? And what the Green Party's policy is that any penalties for non-compliance with this obligation are ring-fenced for fuel poverty alleviation measures, particularly for use in the insulation and retrofitting of homes. Uh-huh. So, here's the problem with that. The cost increases occur because the energy providers are complying with this measure. If they're not complying, you don't have any increased costs. The Green Party wants them to comply totally. They don't want there to be any penalties for non-compliance gathered, because they want total compliance. In which case, the costs will go up, and there will be no additional money for these measures. But then again, these measures involve retrofitting, which is incredibly expensive, well... Depending on your income, anything is incredibly or expensive or inexpensive. But you get what I mean. It's not cheap. Well, you know, if you're in the bottom twenty percent and you're living uh, and you're sixty odd years old and you're living in a a nineteen hundred sort of you know half acre workers cottage in the country, and you you have to pay twenty thousand quid for a heat pump, that could be challenging. I know. I know to the likes of you and me, Gary, the idea that twenty thousand euro. Is something that you know might you might struggle for. It seems like it's a different reality. But I can tell you, Gary, I have friends who work with services who deal with these kinds of people, and they do exist. I have heard. I haven't looked into it, but I've heard that one of the problems with these older homes, Michael, is the electrical supply in them is not capable of doing things like consistently running a heat pump. This is true. Could again be a problem. But anyway, I just wanted to, to do a small little aside because, to my knowledge, this is the first time the Green Party has ever said explicitly that increasing energy uh, costs, or heating costs in this case, is good. Well, you know what? I mean, joking aside, fair folks to them. I would like to see Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael come out and just look us in the, in the face and tell us that. It's straight, you know? Rather than the usual bullshit. Historically, the enthusiasts tend to be the more truthful people. In these kinds of things, whether the Greens and the Eco stuff, the Europhiles and the European stuff, whatever, the internationalists and the UN stuff, they, they tend to be more upfront about the ultimate goals. It's the, 
it is the, the, the bleating half truth, half lie nonsense out of the side of your mouth rubbish that you'll get from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael that actually is far more annoying. Oh, no, no, you know, you'll, you'll save money, lads. You'll save money in the end. Oh, it'll be great. Oh, sure, the price of the price of the electric cars has just come to, it's coming, dropping down every year. There's this fantastic new technology coming with the batteries. The batteries are going to double in their lifespan and going to be half the cost. Oh, no, sure, everybody will be driving electric cars. They'll be, they'll be almost for free, etc., 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 rather than deal with the simple reality that you're going to take on hundreds of thousands of people off the road. <clears throat> Thank God you will, because you wouldn't be able to put the electricity in, into the grid to f- keep them on the road anyway. So We were talking last episode about Labour's bill, the bill they were bringing in on labelling, because labelling is obviously a fascinating subject, which we cannot talk enough about, Michael. <laughs> yeah. I had a labourer when I was a child. You strike me as that sort, yeah. It was a gift. I didn't buy it. I'm sure other people also recognised it in you. I'm going to ignore whatever that comment means, and I don't know what it means, but I'm going to ignore it and move on. So, for those who missed the last episode, Labour brought forward a bill. They want labelling on, they say everything, to contain information about the carbon footprint of the good, the amount of greenhouse gas that was um, released during it. Some of the problems with that are they want basically from cradle to grave, from the extraction of the raw materials to the disposal of the product. They want you to calculate that for everything you sell and put it on the label. But they also want it for every individual point of sale. So if you sell something to 100 different shops, you need to calculate the carbon footprint to each of those shops, even though it will presumably be nearly identical. But you need to do it, and you need to label them appropriately. So Labour brought it to the bill, uh, sorry, Labour brought it to the doll on Wednesday, I believe. Basically, the government said they're not going to oppose it, but they amended it to push it back a year. And they detailed this long list of reasons, Michael, without saying it was a terrible idea. You know when people start talking about potential conflicts with European-wide law and stuff like that? Mm. But I thought, I'll put a link to the debate because it's actually worth reading. The independents are the only people who speak against it, uh, which is at least fun because it made a Vanabatrick say that this would not cost people anything and it would not be more work for small businesses, which is bullshit. But it was good to get that on record. But no, how, how can you, I mean, how is it possible for a sentient human being who is alive and adult in the world to say that this is not going to cost anybody anything and it's not going to add to the cost to the either whether it is to the manufacturer or to the distributor or the retailer or the consumer how is it possible to say that what danny healy ray said he was talking about um Sinn fein saying they'll vote for it but they're critical of it and he says if you try and sit between two stools you'll fall down between them and they said the labor party is trying to suggest that we put more expense on the consumer and more work on the producer and Ivana Batrick cuts in to say that is not true. That is simply not true. But it was the, well, the, only the independents. Everyone else spoke broadly in support of this. And you know that thing they do and they stand up and say, oh, this is a very important bill. Like, no, it's not. It's horseshit. It, Michael Healy Ray was the first person to stand up and he said, I'm not going to support it because I don't think you've considered the implications it's going to have for small businesses and consumers. Who is going to pay for this? And he says, I'll tell you exactly who's going to pay for it. 
The people selling the product will have to pay for it, and they'll pass that cost on to the consumer. So you know, people are going to have to pay more for everything. And then he makes the point that you know he's not sure if other people in the doll rec- realize it, but people are struggling, and they're struggling to pay their energy bills and pay for food. This is just going to put more expense on struggling families. And that seems to be pretty, on the face of it, pretty obviously true. It may not be an incredible expense in all cases, but yeah, it will be an additional expense that will be passed on to consumers. But the thing about it, Gary, is every single thing you buy will have to have this label. Every single thing you buy will have this will have this additional cost of it. Even if it's if it's a cent or a half a cent. I mean, we're already looking at the strongest inflation across the board that we've seen for a very, very, very long time. Now there's a great debate. Is this transitory? Or is it not transitory? Is it a momentary inflationary bleep or what they're looking more serious? Whatever it is. The last thing you need to do is to go out with a lamp looking for more ways to make things more expensive for people to buy. And, by the way, achieve absolutely nothing in the process. When Alan Kelly started speaking about what this would apply for, I was kind of amused by the products he chose. So his examples of the products where you would need this sort of information uh, was asparagus, hazelnut milk and soya products. Asparagus hazelnut milk and i have to say there's part of me as the child of generations and generations of dairy farmers which really objects to the idea you can milk a hazelnut and soya products well soy boys that is that just to me sounds very much like the breakfast of champions in labor voting houses up and down the country then michael he just go on and say it's not just about food either but everything from electronics to housewares to clothing. And then he said something which I think is remarkably stupid to say if you actually want this bill to go through and not have any legal issues, apart from the probably myriad legal issues that there likely already are with it. He said, Michael, a standardised carbon footprint label will provide people with a clear sense of what they are buying. If it is introduced, this bill will provide a competitive advantage especially for Irish food producers. Now, the EU frowns on national legislation which provides competitive advantages, or some could say imposes a competitive disadvantage, on other European products. That tends to be one of those things they just really don't like. Yeah, this is, they, they get very, very, very... Very icky and ticky about that kind of thing. And sometimes, Michael, they will even say bills that, you know, are not directly related could have an impact on that and that will make a problem for them. But in this case, when you have a member who is bringing forward the bill, specifically saying that is one of the bill's purposes, I just don't think that's going to get very far. No, no, no. If, if they keep saying that kind of stuff, the Europeans will be on and they'll trim their names pretty quickly. Actually, as regards the Europeans, I think what it will damage, if it, if, if, if it actually damages anything, it's more likely to damage people. Kenya, I would say. Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania. The places where we would get our uh, out-of-season pears, our mange too, our green beans, they will be hit, if anybody actually looks at them. Now, there are others of us who have not been using these products for quite some time because we didn't think that it was a very sensible thing to do was to fly green bins in from Kenya, but there you go. If anybody's interested, 
There is apparently somewhere in Spain now that somebody noticed has a tropical, what is effectively a tropical climate, and they're growing mangoes and stuff down there. So I'm sure they would love this kind of bill because uh, it will point them towards, point the nice people towards the, 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 the carbon footprint, low carbon footprint mango available in Europe today. Now the Europeans would be all over this, Gary. Like a rash, if they thought that it contained in it some kind of a semblance of... Uh, not a, not a subsidy, but shall we say, an indirect competitive advantage. Mm, I mean, you might have WTA issues or WTO issues with it as well. Um, that certainly be worth looking into. The, anyway, the 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 government didn't oppose it, but they amended it to say that the um, in twelve months this will be read again to allow for further consideration and analysis, including a regulatory impact analysis. So basically, we'll do that in a year uh, because we don't want to come out and say what you have written is one of the stupidest things ever put into paper in the history of this country. <laughs> yeah, we can't say. We, we don't want to say that because you never know. We, we might want to be in government with you next year. Yeah, and it's an environmental thing. So obviously that would look bad if we were to say that. So instead, we're just going to point out some issues with it and we'll get to it in a year absolutely sure that'll happen and it's labeling as well and we love labeling labeling is just it's one of those g-spots for your contemporary progressive they love a good label did you see stephen donnelly uh, putting forward the real harsh choices that government need to make michael based on a constrained fiscal space i did wonder if he was at at the time actually auditioning for a part in South Park because it is the, it is like a, a line from a a, a, a black comedy or a, or a, or a, or a bad or a bad soap opera if you're referring to the choice he was making between uh, fr- was it or rather not the choice he's the reason why we cannot have free antigen testing here yeah so we can't uh, we can't have free antigen testing here something which has been done in other countries we can have subsidized antigen testing but free antigen Antigen testing can't be done because uh, then nurses, Michael. Who will think of the nurses, Gary? So let's, we want to start the clock now and count all the nurses that we get extra because we didn't get these antigen tests. So we can come back next year and ask the minister for the details about these nurses. Yeah, so what was it? If you subsidise an antigen test, it's money you're not spending on a nurse, he said. Are we hiring more nurses? I know that we have amongst the highest spending in uh, the OECD and certainly in Europe uh, on health, but we don't actually have acute care beds or ICU beds or hospital beds. But apparently we have a fantastically well-equipped administration, which is what everybody wants, isn't it? It's what everybody votes for when they vote for an increase in health spending. What they're really hoping for is uh, more administration and better management. Well, not necessarily better management, but certainly more management. It just, it, it strikes me, Michael, as an odd time for the government to rediscover fiscal constraints. And it's such a fucking petty fucking example. I mean, we're not talking mega books here. If you look at the cost of the PCR tests as opposed to the antigen testing. Also, isn't it true that the government has in stock one and a half million tests anyway, of which it has released so like 65,000? I was, I don't, maybe it's 15 million antigen tests. If you recall when the HSE, when the government decided to bring in antigen testing, we said it basically hadn't been brought in. It was only so that the government 
could say they had listened to the experts yes. and brought it in. So some of the figures the Business Post have gotten seem to bear that out. Because you could only get them if you were a close contact and then you would be sent however many antigen tests. The HSE has, since that point, sent out 35,000 tests out of a stock of 1.5 million. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, the, 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 as we said, you can buy them in Lidl. And I will put it to you guy on the print then. Pretty well this. Anything you can buy in Lidl isn't that dear. And if Lidl can buy them and sell them, they're probably making a couple of quid on them. Good luck. It should be within the wit and wisdom of the Irish government, either through their own purchasing mechanisms or even through the purchasing power of the EU, to go out and buy some few million of these things without having to break the bank. We have spent literally billions between social protections and PUPs and all that. We are up to our oxters in debt. Oh, yeah. But this, this is where he draws the line. This is where he says, no, no, we have to be prudent and sensible. The PUP, depending on the week you look at it, cost over 100 million casually. 150 million, depends, depends when you looked at it, the prices. But on that basis, and we did that for quite a while, Michael, mm-hmm. quite a significant while of spending over 100 million a week on PUP. And we've done all of these things. We've just increased our foreign aid budget to 2.5 billion. And then you have, and we're we're borrowing massive amounts of money. Nothing seems to really make sense anymore financially. The Fiscal Advisory Council have basically just screamed themselves hoarse. And then when something actually useful comes along, well, free though. Free isn't great. And then, of course, you had the bad PR of it immediately coming out that the Oroctus, as an employer, not due to politicians, had decided that TDs would be given free antigen testing on the basis that they were effectively employees of the Oroctus. And then you had the wonderful situation of all the parties desperately going back to the Oroctus saying, no, you need to make us pay for that. Just just do it. But there was a wonderful timing of, well, you can't, can't let them be free. That'd be ridiculous. You're getting them for free. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> I've never seen TDs come out against something so quickly that was for their benefit. Yeah, wait, one lady says, within minutes, well, I should be paying for my antigen testing as long as my constituents have to. I wonder if they can expense them. Mm. Well, health, I don't know, maybe. Unless you're pregnant. The other thing that Donnelly did, and I, you know, occasionally you hear politicians talk, and you just have this moment of stop talking. Just at this, just stop. Halfway, just the words stop making the mouth movements because you're not you're just making this worse so donnelly during the this thing where he's telling people that these aren't going to be free he starts talking about how he knows it's not going to be affordable for everyone why would you say that you just told people you're not going to give it to them you're not going to give it to them for free and you know and we know there are people who can't afford them and this is a public service a public health initiative, but we don't care. We're yeah. If you can't afford it, you can't afford it. We're not going to give it to you for free. But minister, if isn't this all about controlling the spread of COVID and controlling infectiousness and transmission and all that sort of stuff? Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, but wouldn't it make sense there to make sure that you know cost isn't an issue that gets in the way of people using these effectively? Well, yeah, but then again, where would you get the nurses? I mean, you'd have to, 
you'd have to sell the nurses then. You, have, you wouldn't be able to, you just wouldn't be able to afford it. You can't have the free things and the nurses and all going together. I love the idea that, you know, well, we can't do this because, you know, where are we going to find money? <laughs> I'm like, that, that, you know, that is a very good question, Stephen. Uh, and I would have liked had we asked that about two years ago, but we didn't. So that's the world we live in now. As if there was there was nowhere that money could be found in the government's budget, you'd have to start sacking nurses. What he actually means is, it is not a policy priority of this government to do this. It's not we don't have the money, it's we don't want to do it. At this point, money basically isn't real. There's just, we've spent billions upon billions on this, none of the numbers matter. We don't, we don't want to spend, we don't do this free. We don't want, this is not a priority of ours. Maybe it's not a priority of ours yet. There is something, and there has been all the way along, a kind of a mulish, stubborn, foot-dragging resistance to the idea of using antigen tests. Which is curious. I don't know where it comes from. As we said there the other day, the chief scientific officer of the government who argued for antigen testing and whose report wasn't even read by Neffet, presumably because they'd already decided they didn't like them, is uh, gone. And the person taking his old job as the head of the Science Foundation of Ireland is a man who publicly called antigen testing snake oil. So what do you expect here? I wonder what pushed them into this. Because Neffet were so against them. I think that they have got to the point, genuinely, we've all got to the point, where we're looking around, casting around desperately for some kind of an explanation. Why the fuck is it so bad? Why is it going on? What, what's, what, are we do, what are we not doing? We have had a longer and harder and more complete lockdown than anybody else in Europe. We are as vaccinated or more vaccinated than anybody else in Europe. I think possibly the Maltese. Have, are slightly more vaccinated than us. But even though they, they desperately want to blame the unvaccinated for this, the, the numbers don't stack up, Gary, when you sit down and you, you get your pencil out and do the math. It's not that... I'm distracting myself here, but do you remember the days, Gary, when we were saying, would 70% would be enough to achieve herd immunity? That once we'd hit 70%, it would all be grand. And it could even happen earlier, you know. But 70, 75% should we be flying it. Here we are, 90, whatever percent. We're still, we're now down to the point of pointing at people in the street and saying, look at him. He wasn't vaccinated. It's all his fault. But we're looking around, we're thinking, what the hell? Are we not, what are we doing? What are we doing wrong? Why are we so bad at this? And one of the only things that was left was to, well, the Danes opened up earlier than us with lower vaccination levels than us and have, it looks like, been doing better than us when it comes to new cases and more control. And they have been heavy, heavy, heavy into their, into their rapid antigen tests. And the, the, Well, I think they, that's probably true to a degree about the, the Scandinavians generally and Brits to an extent, maybe the Germans. So I think it I got to a point where they had to do it because... There was nothing else to do except literally send us back in to lockdown. And I'm not 100% sure that we're not going to end up back there anyway at this stage. Uh, some of the no I don't know if you've been talking to some of our friends in Kildare Street and Marine Street, but the music is very different in the last couple of days than we've had for the last for a while uh, about people who had been absolutely confident. Oh, no, no, no return. 
We can't go back. We can do other things. We have limit with no, but there's no return. See, they've covered now because you have Austria is going back into lockdown. And I think Netherlands is going back into partial lockdown. So, you know, as long as someone else has done it, you have cover. You do, and I don't know if you've looked at some of Neffet's uh, modelling. Oh, God. Yeah. 400,000 cases. Was it 400,000? Yeah, that was the... And that, I don't even think 400,000 was the worst case scenario. I think maybe all of us would die in the worst case scenario. Mm. Do you remember that? 125,000 dead? Oh, that was a good one. So there have been what? There have been 515,000 confirmed cases in Ireland. I thought Neffa had said over two hundred thousand. I hadn't. I hadn't heard the four hundred thousand. Oh, for the for, for the pro- projected possible case numbers. Yeah, you know, up to four hundred. So if we have five hundred and sixteen or five hundred and fifteen thousand up to this point, and over December we will get let's say two to four hundred thousand. <laughs> we won't. That would seem unlikely to be correct. Just to, I mean, you know. Like, if you look back at January, when we were having just an awful time of it, it was in the nursing homes, it was just devastating things. Yes. I think the average amount of cases then was about six or 7,000 a day. Mm-hmm. And that was not for the whole month? No, that, that was just a week. That was, your pe- that was your peak, peak week period, yeah. But we would need to, hit, like, if it was 200,000, we'd need to hit that basically every day of December to do that. So not a peak. Like, you're, you're plateauing at the highest level this country has ever seen. If you're right about the 400,000, I mean, you're, what, you're talking about 12,000 a day? Yeah, yeah. For a month? I'm willing to have five euros with the first persons to text in or to email us that we won't come within an ass's roar of 200, let alone 400,000. An ass's roar is a well-known and well widely understood scientific distance. Anybody out there who wants to know, well, they'll know already. We will not come within an ass's roar of that. Because, Gary, if we were in the position that we were trending like we possibly in some kind of alternative universe could come within an ass's roar of that, they would have us back in our houses, locked up. I'm looking, Stephen Donnelly put up some of the, the Neffet projections, the actual graphs for them. And you can see that the projected levels... The peak is two, nearly three times higher than what we saw in January, and pretty much going over the entire month. Actually, yeah, Neffet, Neffet's modelling, and we've been trying to do a little bit of work on this in GRIP to kind of pull out some of the exact measures of it. It has not been good. It has, in fact, been awful. But this, I'm very interested to know what they're basing this on, because it is so extreme Either they have information that indicates things are just going to go to the wall in a way we haven't seen at all, or this is just bullshit. The only circumstance that I can think of that would mean that these numbers were in any way approachable, if they had reason to believe that there was, in fact, a new new mutation out there against which there was very low levels of protection by the vaccines and which had a high degree of infective infectiousness and they thought and they were they think that it was just about to hit now if we are hitting i don't what are we at now we've had lambda haven't we alpha beta gamma delta mu mu what are we whatever we'll say theta 
this is going to be COVID theta. If there was a COVID theta out there that they knew about that was about to hit and explode, well, then who knows? But absent that, you say their their modelling has been very bad. I suppose the cynic would say, Gary, well, that would depend on what you believe the function of their modelling was. Now, Michael, we can't make those kind of comments. I didn't make a comment. I asked a question. I asked a question, a simple, innocent question. And I just let it hang there. Are you implying that there might be some political reason they've been so consistently wrong and in so particular a direction? Absolutely. How can I imply something in a question, Gary? You're, imp- you're imputing capacities to my syntax and my grammar that I, I think is impossible. I'm asking just a question. It's, it's curious. Well, is it curious that, as you say, the projections always go in one direction? But then again, if the model is set up in that way, well, it would be even more curious if, we, if it was to go all over the gaff, I suppose. We are going to be back on Sunday. Yes. If the Lord gives us. Bye-bye. All the best.